But this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. And as we look at the faith of our Heavenly Father, we look at our Father who, uh, who was uh, certainly very faithful in all that He has done. And uh, we certainly understand that our Heavenly Heavenly Father, not our biological father, which can make no comparison to our heavenly father, and our heavenly father. Knowledge, and we realize that. And so this morning, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. And God's inspired and inerrant olive word reads And when Jesus had spoken these things, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And so when then he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave's ear, cut it off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Father, we would ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now as we spend some time uh, focusing and studying in this word, uh, Lord, would your spirit uh, illuminate this text for us? Would you open our hearts and our minds? Father, the words that I say this morning, uh, Father, would you would you guard them? Would you? Correct them. Uh, Father, with those words that we hear would only be your words. Father, I'm reminded that uh, the only thing that I can do is uh, put the word in the ear. Father, you must take it from the ear to the heart. And so we ask you this morning as we uh, look at this um, action of yours, look at these few verses of yours, Father, uh, that they would indeed uh, take root and grow within our heart this morning. I prayed in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've titled this sermon, The Resolve of Jesus. The Oxford Dictionary defines resolve as the firm determination to do something. The firm determination to do something. And Jesus has given His final instructions. He has given His final prayer. There is only one thing left for Jesus to do and that is to go home. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. 
And yet there was one particular location favored by Jesus to spend the night. And that's where He heads. To the garden. To a garden. It is from this garden that we will witness love of Jesus. We will also observe His total rejection by one who has shared in His ministry. We will also see His total willingness. His total security. Lastly, we will see His total surrender. And in verses 1, chapter 8, it says that as Jesus had spoken these words, uh, but start from John chapter 14, verse 1. And these are the words that Jesus has given his, these instructions to His disciples on this particular night. They were all spoken within this night. And He says that when Jesus had spoken these words, that He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of, of the Kidron, or the, the Kidron in Ohio, it's called Kidron, so, but it's really Kidron, where there was a garden. And He entered into this garden, uh, the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, some places call it, or the Mount of Olivia, to other places called the Mount of Olives, different names that are put. We believe it all to be this same particular location. And as they enter into this garden uh, with his disciples on this final evening, we will see the total rejection of Jesus. The total rejection of Jesus. There was a time that they would have made Jesus king. There was a time, in fact, that they did indeed attempt to make Jesus king. And Jesus perceived, it tells us in John chapter 6, 15, that Jesus perceived that they were going to take him and force him to be king. And Jesus withdrew from there and went up onto the mountaintop alone. Jesus' time has now come. And as Jesus has often said that his time has now yet come, but now we see that his time has come. And instead of accepting the crown that earlier was offered to him, Jesus here in the garden will be accepting the cross. He'll be accepting the cross instead of the crown. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, it records for us this insight in the behavior of Jesus. As was his custom, Luke writes, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. This was a pattern. This was a routine of Jesus. You also may have your own pattern. You also have, may have your own thing that you do first thing in the morning or maybe at night, whatever it is, that you can look at and that you can see this is the pattern that I have had one such pattern. And one of his disciples who knew this routine very well, he understood exactly Jesus where Jesus was headed. He understood Jesus' routine and he was now using this information. One of his very own was using this information to betray him. It was an act of total rejection. To use the very information, the intimate knowledge, a place that you spent so much time with one that considered you friend. One that had specifically chosen you for the ministry and the task that you are now carrying out. And it is this knowledge, and we see the hardness of the heart that he could betray and use this very information against Jesus, if you will. But Jesus knew, Jesus knew exactly what lies ahead, and he went forth. It is the resolve of Jesus. We see the behavior or the, the, the resolve of Jesus, the firm determination of Jesus. 
that now he knew what lied ahead, lies ahead and he was going to go forward no matter what. But Jesus was very much a part, or Judas was very much a part of Jesus' ministry. And, and we must understand this negative aspect of this text uh, just, just once again as we look at Judas, just briefly, just briefly. We certainly don't want to, we don't want to uh, focus too much attention on him, but we must understand that Judas was very much a part of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus said, someone is going to betray me, no one raised their hand and pointed out, I knew it was Judas. I knew he was going to do this. Even after the fact, as we often look at hindsight's 2020, no one looked back and said, yeah, we've seen it coming, right? We hear that so often from people after the fact. Well, I could have told you that. It would have been helpful if you'd have told me before, right? Nobody, nobody is going to say that about Judah. Judas was the treasurer of the tribe, if you will. Judas was the financial planner of the band of brothers here, the band of the, of the disciples here. He was included in the number as they went out two by two, as they went out and they healed people, as they went out and they ministered to people, as they went out and fed people, as they went out and evangelized. Judas was with them and carried out this same ministry. And yet, what is the end result of the life of Judas? A total rejection of Jesus. A total rejection. And I might add that it does take a lifetime to define a person, does it not? We must be very, very quick. And maybe I'm preaching to myself this morning. We must be very, very quick not to, not to give up on anyone, right? We don't really know what the outcome of that life is going to be until that life is over. And we see here the outcome of the life of Judas. We see the betrayal that ultimately defined the man. And, and yet this morning, I want to also bring this a little bit uh, closer to home for you and I, uh, and that is that we too, I'm sure, have been betrayed by someone. We too have been rejected by someone. And this being Father's Day, maybe it was our father. I, I, I don't want to put any thoughts or suggestions into your mind, but, but probably I would be safe to assume that every single one of us can think of somebody as soon as I said that or a situation uh, that we feel a bit of a betrayal there. Maybe it was a, a friend. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe, maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a pastor, right? Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a, somebody that we looked up to, a mentor of ours that it might have been. What was your response? How did you respond to the betrayer, to the rejecter? Or maybe I should ask it this way. How are you? What is your response to the person or the situation that maybe you feel a bit of betrayal here this morning? And so we have to acknowledge that portion, I think. But we also have to look at the other side of it. And that is that you too, and that I too, it is quite possible that we ourselves, that I myself, that you yourself, have also betrayed someone else. You too might be that source of rejection in someone else's life. I, I, th I think we would do a disservice to the text if we didn't look at those two portions and consider ourselves innocent of anything that Judas might have done here this morning. But let us remember that, that Judas Iscariot, that his history was recorded on purpose and for purpose. It is a lesson for us all. 
We must look at the life of Judas and realize and know that it was a lesson that is a lesson for each and every one of us. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, God's word warns us Let him who thinks he stands take heed. that He does not fall. Every single one of us could find ourselves possibly in a position, hopefully not as severe as Judas here, but it's still of betraying someone of a friend family member, whatever that must be. Uh, but, but then again, though, this does bring us to the question, does it not? How did Jesus respond to the kiss of his betrayer? To this total rejection by the one who shared many evenings with him in this garden sanctuary? How did Jesus respond when he found himself in that place of being totally rejected and betrayed? Well, we see it in verses 4 through 7. 4 through 7. And I've called this, and the heading I have here is, is total willingness. We see a total willingness on the, on the part of Jesus. And, and it starts out with, so Jesus knowing all things that were coming to him. Jesus did not walk into this garden blindly. Jesus didn't go down and cross the stream of Kidron, which, which by the way, this was Passover. And it was this very ravine, this very stream that flowed out of Jerusalem that all the slaughtered lambs, the thousands and thousands. Can you imagine? Don't even imagine. Can you imagine the amount of blood that ran down this ravine? And it is this ravine that Jesus now crosses over as those sacrificial lambs are being slaughtered. And Jesus knowing that he himself was willingly walking in to that very situation. And we see here the omniscience of Jesus, do we not? Jesus was not taken by surprise. Jesus is all-knowing and knew exactly what lied ahead. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon Him, still He went forth. He went forth. There was a voluntariness, if you will, about Jesus. And there was a resolve about Jesus that, that He went forth and He said to them, I mean, it, it records a little bit further down here that, that Judas brought a whole band of warriors with him. You know, different commentaries will tell you something different. We certainly don't know the exact amount, but, but according to history, it could have been as many as 2,000, though I doubt that was the case here coming into this garden. But they came with lantern, they came, they came with lights, they came with all these types of things. Uh, uh, lanterns, torches, and weapons, it tells us, they came out expecting to take a hardened criminal, a vicious criminal, a violent criminal, and they came prepared to apprehend this criminal by whatever means necessary. They came, be, they came prepared. And yet here comes Jesus and goes forward and, go, and, and meets the people that are going to, that have his arrest warrant and are going to take him by force if need be. And Jesus goes forward and says, who do you seek? Who are you looking for? We see here the willingness, the voluntariness of Jesus as he goes forward and meets uh, these Roman officers and the chief priests of the Pharisees. They all came out together and banded into this, this act, uh, this act of, uh, of violence here together. The first Adam, he hid himself in the garden. The second Adam went forth to meet his enemies. The first Adam felt guilty and hid himself. The second Adam was totally innocent and went forward willingly to meet his, his demise, ultimately. His challengers, his, his uh, arresting 
officers, if, if you will, without hiding, without any battle, without any fight at all. And Jesus the Nazarene is what they said. That's, that's who we are seeking. The title was undoubtedly right on the warrant. Prison. I've not seen a, a, a warrant a arrest for warrant for my arrest. That, that's a good thing. Uh, uh, write that down. Hopefully I'll be able to continue to say that. Um, but I, I suppose on such a thing, there's probably a, a charge or, or, or a full name that's on there. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but I suppose that that's exactly what was on this piece of paper that said you are supposed to apprehend and bring in Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. They wanted to make sure there was no question on who it was. And I might also add, in a few chapters, we will see that the heading on the cross over top of Jesus' cross that the charge that was placed or the title that was put there was Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. That was the charge. And if you also remember these very same chief priests of the Pharisees, they didn't want the King of the Jews there. They just wanted Jesus the Nazarene there. But these are the accusations. This is the name that was here. And Jesus responds. How does He respond? He says, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And, and, and then John puts in this little insert right here and says, and Judas also, who was betraying him, comma, was standing with them. There stood the betrayer right there in the midst of that. But Jesus says, I am. Imago, or that, that would be, that would be uh, uh, the saying that I am. That would be, be the I am that, that should point us back to Exodus. In, in, in our language here, in our English language, uh, we, we, add, we insert some words in, in the NASB that I use. Words that are inserted are in, are in italic. And we can see here that the word he is not there. And by he being there, we kind of miss. We miss the, 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 what is being said. Jesus is claiming, I am. He is acknowledging, I am deity. He is saying, I am God, in essence, is exactly what he is saying. It's a clear reference to the deity of Jesus. William Tyndale, in his pro, uh, prologue to the Gospel of John, he, he had this to write. He says, the cause of his, speaking of John, writing were certain heresies that arose in his time. Namely, two of them, uh, Tyndale writes, one, which was well, the first, which one denied Christ to be very God and the other to be very man and come in the very flesh and in the very nature of man. Well, I would offer you this morning that these two heresies are still present today. There are still some today who claims that Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never said, I am God. Well, I can't see how you can get beyond this point here and once again here this morning we do see that Jesus did indeed claim to be deity and I could argue uh, but smarter men have argued greater <laughs> more fully than I can that that's exactly what Jesus is saying here when he says I am I am and these two very same problems we still have today those who want to claim one extreme to the other, either that Jesus never said to be God or that Jesus could have not possibly been fully man. He couldn't have been both, right? And that is the crux of our Christian faith, is it not? How can God? 
not Jesus wasn't 50% God, 50% man. Jesus claimed, the Bible claims Jesus was 100% God and Jesus was 100% man. We can't find, we can't possibly grasp what this is totally means and how this works out, but that is what the biblical text teaches us. And we see it here that Jesus is indeed claiming deity. And they responded how? They responded, they drew back and fell to the ground. Think about that. Jesus says, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus says, I am. And they fall back and fall to the ground. Now, some would say, those who have a little more of a liberal interpretation of the biblical text would say, well, yeah, they tripped over each other. Okay, whatever. You got 500 people and all of a sudden they fall like dominoes? Well, that had been hilarious, but nonetheless. No, no, I believe what it says. I believe at the name of Jesus, at the name of God, they literally fell to their face. In fact, J.C. Rao writes this. He says that the only reasonable account of this event is that it was a miracle. It was an excuse. It was an exercise for the last time of that same divine power which our Lord calmed the waves, stilled the wind, cast out devils, healed the sick, and raised the dead. And it was a miracle purposefully wrought at this juncture, and I might say for us also, in order to show the disciples and their enemies that our Lord was not taken because He could not help it, or crucified because He could not prevent it, but because He was willing to suffer and die for sinners. He came to be a willing sufferer for our sins that the Scripture might be fulfilled, end quote. And I think as you think about what, what uh, uh, Ryle wrote right there, I think that is exactly the outcome of Jesus' response here. And Jesus says in verse 7, He gives them a second chance. And He says, therefore, He asked them again, hey, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. I find it interesting, and I could certainly uh, do a little uh, eisegesis here, I guess, and read into the text and, and maybe not even read in it so much and say that Jesus gives people opportunity over and over and over again to answer the question, whom do you seek? I could phrase it a bit differently this morning and say, what do you seek? What do you seek this morning? As we go through our life, we look for meaning in life. And, and, and fathers, and men, we look for meaning and purpose. We find it in our workplace, right? We find it in our accumulated goods. We find it in our, in our hobbies. And yet time and time and time again, we find ourselves wanting, do we not? I think though here as the, this response that Jesus, that they gave Jesus when He said, I am, and they fall down, I think it is also it should be a reminder that we are told by in Philippians chapter two that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, all those in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Either in this lifetime we can confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, or we will confess him in the life to come. Then it is too late. We too must answer the question, whom do we seek? Whom do you seek this morning? It's the total willingness of Jesus to go forward, although full knowledge was his of what the events were going to lead to that evening. 
And here next, we, we see that, at least I've titled it as such, the heading I have given it is as total security in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, Jesus says that I told you that I am. Again, our English text will put in he, but, but I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go. Let these go. Jesus was not looking out for himself. Jesus, on this very night that they were coming, many, many people were coming with weapons, with swords, uh, and to arrest him, and yet his mind and his thought is on his followers. And he turns and says, let these go. We have much to learn from the method of Jesus as he finds himself in the midst of what must have been a tragic event for his life. And, and I, you know, I, I was reminded also of how I, might, how I myself respond at times. When I am faced into a difficult situation, I have found myself, often of my own doings, in those difficult situations. And the only thing I can think about is how do I get James out of the situation James got himself into, right? But Jesus, not so. But, I, you know, Philippians tells us that we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. Roman tells us that we're supposed to give preference one to another. And we see it modeled here in Jesus, that Jesus is willing to turn to them and say, okay, here am I, take me, let these here go. But I think there's a stronger sense here this morning in the actual sense that the text is teaching us this morning. And that is that Jesus saved or secured or kept all those that we seen earlier the Father had given Him and kept them safe. In verse 9, Jesus said, Of those whom you have given me, I lost none. And Jesus said, This is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given me, I lose none. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus said in 10.28, And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus said as He prayed in John chapter 17, While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name. You have given them to me. I guarded them. Not one of them perished. Not one of them perished. Listen, this is here we see the total security of Jesus as He turns to those disciples and He says, let them go. We see the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised them all along. That I will protect you. That I will secure you. That I will keep you safe. We also must be reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where Paul writes to the church there and to us, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with temptation will also provide a way of escape. The time will come that these disciples will face death themselves. The time will come where they too will face the very path that Jesus Himself has taken that they will make that stand for their faith. But Jesus understood now is not the time and kept them totally secure. Totally secure. And, and lastly, it brings us to verse um, eight or 10 and 11. 10 and 11 where we see the total surrender of Jesus. It was at this time where, where Simon uh, pulls off his best brave heart act. He sees them laying on the ground. He sees the courage rise up within him. He pulls out the sword. It was probably a dagger. But nonetheless, 
He, he didn't quite su- su- succeed. Uh, Malchus must have been quite an agile person because he dodged to the side and Peter only got his ear. Peter certainly meant to kill the man. And he whacks off, off his ear. And, Peter, and, and, and uh, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, put the sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter still has much to learn also, does he not, as he understands and learns what surrender looks like. Just earlier, Peter had told Jesus, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus responds, Peter, actually, you're going to deny me three times, which we'll see next week. Isn't this our response also? When I feel strong in my faith. When I, as people say, when I'm, when people, we like to say this sometimes, right? When I'm prayed up, read up. I mean, I can face anything until I can't. Until I can't. We too become invincible in our own minds, even as Peter did here. We will see next week that he uh, denied Jesus three times and he went out and wept bitterly. But from failure, Peter's faith will become invincible, unstoppable, unshakable as we see in in the full effect of what this evening will have on Jesus and therefore on his disciples. And Jesus says, put up your sword. Peter was, was only trying to take advantage of the situation. And Jesus says, am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? And here we can clearly see the total resolve he could have called. He could have called an army of heavenly warriors to fight on his behalf. But these were not his enemies. These were not the enemies of Jesus. See, earlier also in John, Jesus said that I didn't come to condemn the world, but I came to save the world. And by giving my life on behalf of those that the Father has given me. Jesus didn't come to fight with, with them. Jesus came to offer them life if they would only Surrender if they would only uh, surrender their life to him. Jesus' willingness gave to give himself to offer security to all who would follow Jesus in his total surrender to the will of the Father. That is what we see here in these past few verses as Jesus will now be taken into custody. And Jesus knew exactly what lied ahead. And I, and I might offer to you here this morning also, that this must be your resolve. This must be my resolve. This must be each and every one of us resolve here this morning that we too, and on this Father's Day especially, that we too must understand that, that uh, we too must be willing to stand up on behalf of our faith. We too must willingly do that. We too must have the courage. We too must have the strength. We too must have the love to be able to follow this model that Jesus has set before us and be with total willingness, we must give ourselves on behalf of what God has placed before us. And fathers, uh, those of you who are are married this morning speaking directly to you, uh, that's you. I mean, that's you. This isn't the time to bail. This isn't the time to, to check out of your marriage, to check out of your life. No. God gave you His daughter as your bride. You too must have total resolve this morning to be willing as whatever it takes to stand up on behalf of your family. Whatever it takes to lay your life down on behalf of your family, if that's what it is. It is your, must be your resolve this morning to lead your family 
as this model for us in this time of personal cost to you. And I pray that that is your resolve on this Father's Day. And if it is not, and if it is, may you renew that resolve once more this morning as you leave this place. Lord, I thank you um, for your total resolve. I thank you for not giving up on me. I thank you for your continued chasing after me. And Father, I, I know that each one of us this morning um, has our own story uh, of how we came to you. And Father, if we are here this morning and we do not, if someone does not have that story, if someone does not have that relationship with you, and Father, right there in the seat, would your spirit convict them to this morning to be totally resolved to, to give their life to you. And Father, I pray that as we go through our life, that we acknowledge and that we are thankful of what you've done on our behalf. But Father, with that comes a great responsibility and acknowledgement to know that I too must respond even as you did. And even at times as I am betrayed, even at times as I am rejected, even at times as, as we feel that we are mistreated, misrepresented, um, accusations falsely made against us, Father, we too must respond in the way that you did. And that is total surrender and total love. And total love for, for not only those who love us, but also those who, Father, may mistreat us. And so I pray, Lord, that um, this Father's Day in 2021, may we just recommit uh, the responsibilities that you have given to us. Recommit to stand uh, for the truth no matter what. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.